Good evening, everybody. Tonight, we are moving into the culmination, as far as I'm concerned, the culmination of the book of Daniel. It's amazing. We've been getting, again, repeat and expand, repeat and expand. Now, in chapter 11, the Lord's going to put a lot of this history all together. So it'll be heavy in history. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the way you have uh, repeatedly gone over these prophecies, expanding our knowledge and understanding as we go. Help us to understand our place in the scope of time and in the great plan of salvation. Tonight, as we come before thee, we pray for thy spirit to be poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. For your edification, the handout I gave you that has the quiz sheet on it also has attached to it a verse-by-verse interpretation of chapter 11. As you look at it, I may be referring to it. I'm not going to read it through, okay? But as you look through it, you will see that there are various quotations from the spirit of prophecy, from uh, history, from uh, different uh, authorities that would help to explain some of these different verses so that we can move along faster. Let's begin with our chapter 9, or our review of chapter 9. Now, when we went through chapter 9 last week, we find that it was the first year of King Darius, Darius the Mede. Now, this chapter we find also begins with the first year of Darius. So chapter 9 and chapter 11 take place within the same time frame. So does chapter 6. That's why I'm taking them in this out-of-order format. And here we find in chapter 9, Darius is on the throne. He's the son of Ahasuerus. Now Daniel had been studying the book of Jeremiah, and he discovered that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity was about to come to an end, and the Jews would be released. Through prayer, supplication, and fasting, Daniel confesses the sins of himself first and the sins of his people. Even though Daniel's sins are not recorded in the scriptures, apparently he sensed his need. Leaving heaven at the beginning of Daniel's prayer, Gabriel flew swiftly and arrived at Daniel's side before he ever finished his prayer, which shows that he must have been moving right along. He must have been going faster than the speed of light because it takes about 10 minutes for light to get to us from the sun. He was there in about three minutes from heaven, wherever that is. We find that Gabriel said that 70 weeks, which was 490 years when you apply the year-day principle, were cut off or set aside from the 2,300-year prophecy of Daniel 8. It was set aside for the people to prepare for and to welcome in the Messiah, who would die in the middle of that 70th week. He would die not for himself, but for the people. These are consecutive weeks, these 70. There are some who teach today that the 69 
are consecutive, but the last one is cut off, tossed way down to the end of time. That's called the gap theory. And it's, it's really a um, counter-reformation theology. It is not biblically based. And we see here the decree to restore and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was issued in 457 B.C., thus starting both the 2300-year prophecy and the 70-week or 490-year prophecy. They both start at the same time. And that was with the decree, the decree from Artaxerxes, the Persian king. Now, this was the third decree, remember, because the third decree allowed them to build the walls and protect themselves and thus establish themselves as a city and as a nation too. Now, Jesus was baptized in 27 AD. He was crucified in 31. And the death of Stephen in 34 completed the 70 weeks prophecy. And it applies to the Messiah, not the Antichrist, as taught by futurists. Now, as we enter chapter uh, 11, we find that it's going to get very heavy in history. I don't expect you to remember all of this, although that would be a good thing to put on a quiz, I suppose. But uh, you're going to be getting a lot of history. That's why I gave you the commentary there. I will try to go through it as quickly as I can because the chapter is long. When we get toward the end, we will find that we will move into modern times. It will take us all the way back, again, repeating and expanding. It will take us all the way back to those early empires. And by the time you get over to the end of chapter 11, we find that we are into modern times from about, about verse 40 to 45. Those verses apply to things we can relate to today. So let's go ahead and get started. Daniel 11.1 1 says, Also in the first year of Darius, the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. First off, notice what it says in the first year of Darius the Mede. I mentioned before that there were, there were different Dariuses. There was Darius the Mede, Darius the Persian, the number one, and then Darius the second, who was a Persian. This was Darius the Mede. He was the uncle of King Cyrus. And so it was in the first year of Darius the Mede. Even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him to strengthen the king. Gabriel speaks to Darius the Mede, not Darius the Persian. He was his uncle. Uh, look at Cyrus's uncle. Look at 11.2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. Now he's really moving along. No longer is he talking about Babylon, Babylon's history. This prophecy starts with the Persians and moves forward. Here, he even tells us how many more 
Persian kings there would be before the fourth one would be very wealthy, and he's going to aggravate the Greeks. What was the next kingdom that was to bring down the Persian Empire? Greece, right? So there's, the Persians are going to start stirring up trouble. All right, what's it mean by three more kings of Persia? Since Darius was a Mede, he doesn't count as one of these kings. Cyrus was a Persian of both the Medes and the Persians. The word more indicates after Cyrus. So after Cyrus is dead, there would be three more. Historical kings that came up in Persia after Cyrus was Cambyses, who was Cyrus's son. He ruled from 530 to 522 B.C. And then there was a fellow by the name of False Smyrtus. You notice he didn't last long, 522. Barbia was his Persian name. And then after him, we come into Darius I. He's from 522 to 486 B.C. Now, both Darius I and Cyrus, they issued decrees to rebuild Jerusalem's temple, as we find in Ezra 7. But he's not the one that the prophecy begins with. It isn't until Artaxerxes issues the decree to rebuild the walls that it begins. Now, what is this fourth Persian king? The rich Persian king was Xerxes. Not Artaxerxes, but Xerxes. Xerxes from 486 to 465. He is the Ahasuerus, who marries Queen Esther. Okay? His army of the Persians, he had Assyrians, uh, Colchians, Thracians, Ethiopians, they all fought against the Greeks. But they were completely defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis in 480 and Plataea in 479 B.C. Daniel 11.3 says, And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Who is this mighty king who would come up? The Persians kept aggravating the Greeks, so now the Greeks are going to put them in their place. And the first king who comes up, this is Alexander the Great. He unites the Greeks, and he defeats the Persian Empire and pushes them all the way back, and then he went on all the way to India. Wanted to go on further, but his army wouldn't go with him. So uh, there is a story that says Alexander sat on a hill and wept because he couldn't conquer all the way to China like he wanted to. Daniel 11.4 says, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. Remember that? Leopard, how many heads did it have? Four, right? Okay, the four winds of heaven, and not to his prosperity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others beside those. So the four kingdoms, which we've discussed in the past, that replaced Alexander, the four generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy and Seleucus, they split up Alexander's kingdom among themselves. And so we find Alexander dies at the age of between 32 and 33, 
He was about the age of Jesus. He dies, and his brother Philip and Alexander's infant son, they tried to rule, but they were eliminated by his four generals who were all struggling for power. So in 301 B.C., the kingdom is divided four ways, and you can see it there. Cassander takes the west, Lysimachus takes the north, Seleucus takes the east, and Ptolemy takes the south. Because of this, these terms, king of the north and king of the south, begin to be introduced in verses 5 and 6. Well, if you look at that, this tells you right off who is the king of the north. Well, it was Lysimachus, but Lysimachus would fall to Seleucus. So Seleucus will take over his territory, and he will become the king of the north. And then the king of the south... Ptolemy, he's reigning down in Egypt. As a matter of fact, uh, Seleucus kind of wipes out Cassander too and builds up his kingdom. Actually, it took a little while because they didn't all fall at the same time. But notice, look at verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong. That's Egypt. And one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him. And have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. The king of the south, Egypt. Notice Egypt was controlled by the descendants of Ptolemy. It is south of Jerusalem. Alexandria was its capital. Very humbly named after Alexander. Egypt eventually annexed Libya, the coast of Asia Minor, and controlled Lebanon and Cyprus, and also Judea, some of the time. It would be, there'd be a power struggle between the king of the south and the king of the north, between the Seleucid kings in Syria and the Egyptian Ptolemaic kings in the south. And the poor Jews were caught in the middle. Sometimes they'd have to side in with one king, and then they'd have to side in with the other, which always uh, upset the uh, opposing king. Now, the kings of the south, these kings were strong from the start. The Egyptians, from the beginning, they were a strong empire. And your Bible in Daniel 11, it's going to refer to these kings, okay? So I don't expect you to know them all. But notice, it starts with Ptolemy I, Soter, and He was 323 to 282 B.C. Then Ptolemy II, called Philadelphus, he was 285 to 246 B.C. Ptolemy III, Eugenes, he was from 246 to 221. Then Ptolemy IV, Epiphanes, 221 to 203 B.C. Ptolemy V, again, Epiphanes, he was 203 to 181 B.C. Then Ptolemy Jupiter, he was 181, didn't last long. Ptolemy the seventh, Philometer, he was 181 to 145 B.C. And there were a bunch of them in between until you get down to the last pharaoh of Egypt was a woman. The last pharaoh of Egypt of the Ptolemaic kings was Cleopatra. Cleopatra the sixth, 
51 to 30 B.C. This is the Cleopatra that you hear so much about with regard to Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. These kings constantly fought a series of wars against the descendants of Seleucus, who was in Asia. Okay? He was in Syria. And during this period, they're struggling back and forth, back and forth, like a seesaw. Sometimes they'd win, sometimes they'd lose. In Daniel 6, it says, And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter and of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, and she shall not retain the power of the arm. Neither shall he stand, nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. No wonder Daniel was confused. All the he's and he's and she's and uh, all that, because it doesn't tell you their names. It just tells you the actions that are going on there. Now, it was very common for these kings in order, matter of fact, Solomon did it, if they wanted to make sure that they had a peace treaty or something, they would take the daughter of the king as a wife or concubine and keep them basically under house arrest to be sure that her father didn't invade their territory because he was afraid they might end up killing his daughter. Sometimes it was to, through marriage so that a common ancestor could inherit both kingdoms. And so we find when it says she was taken as a treaty or as an agreement, it was this type of an arrangement. Now, it says the strong prince. The strong prince is Seleucus I, Nicanor. He was protected by Ptolemy I, Soter. He drove Lysimachus back out of the east and took much of his land. Thus, Seleucus became the king of the north because he defeated one of the other kings, okay? And so we've just given the names of some of the southern kings. Now let's look at some of the northern kings. And by the way, a lot of this takes place when you close the last page of the Old Testament the book of Malachi, Israel's an independent nation, right? You turn the page over, and all of a sudden the Romans are there. What happened? There's 400 years that are between the end of Malachi to the first chapter of Matthew. This stuff took place during that 400 years, you see. This is what we call the intertestinal period that a lot of this happened. Some before, and some of it overlaps a little till afterwards. All right, so the first of the Seleucids was Seleucid I, Icantor. Icantor. And he was from 312 to 281. Then came Antiochus. Now, the names Seleucid and Antiochus are interchangeable. What is a city that the Christians fled to? Antioch of Syria, you see. It was a city named after Antiochus. Antiochus I, Soter, he was from 281 to 262 B.C. 
Then Antiochus II, Theos, Theos, the word Theo, uh, like theology, means God. Okay? So he considered himself a god. 261 to 246. Then came Seleucus II, Callinicus, and spelled two different ways, 246 to 225. Then came Seleucus III, Serranus. He was from 225 to 223. Then came Antiochus III, called Antiochus the Great. He was 223 to 187. Then comes Seleucus IV, Philopater. And the word Philopater is interesting. Philo, we get the word Philadelphia from it. It means brotherly love. And pater means father. Okay, he was the son who was loved by his father. He was uh, his favorite son. 187 to 175. Now, after Philopater comes Antiochus IV. He is known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? And that's 175 to 164. And after Antiochus comes Antiochus V, Eupater, and he is 164 to 150 B.C. And then there's a bunch of other descendants all the way down to 65. Now, 65 is an important date. We just mentioned that Cleopatra brings us up to the 60s, you see, B.C. So this will take us down to the, about the time of Cleopatra. Now, notice here, I want to mention about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. There are those who try to say that um, Antiochus Epiphanes was the Antichrist that Daniel talked about with regard to his 70-week prophecy. He does not fill the bill. Uh, when you historically look at what he did and look at the prophecy carefully, he does not fit. Actually, it, that is a counter-reformational Jesuit preterist interpretation to put all the prophecies in the past. And there are some who even take that now and try to apply it to futurism too. But you can't do that. I mean, you're talking, you know, you're not talking apples and oranges to do that. But we're not going to get into that now. That's another study. Now, the kings of the north, they shall make an alliance, they being Antiochus II and Ptolemy II, a royal marriage sealed a treaty around 250 B.C. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus of Egypt, marries his daughter Bernice. Now this is where it gets interesting. Ptolemy marries his daughter Bernice, or actually it's pronounced Berenice, to Sirius King Antiochus II, Theos, after Antiochus divorced his wife, Leotus. Now catch that. Antiochus Theos was married to Leotus, but in order to make a peace treaty with the Egyptians, he divorces Leotus to marry Berenice, the Egyptian. But because they needed an heir to the throne that would inherit both kingdoms, but Berenice had a baby son by Antiochus. But the marriage was strained. 
they didn't get along. He liked Laodice better. He liked his first wife better. By the way, the city of Laodicea takes its name from her. Okay? And he liked Laodice better. When Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, Eugenius, declares war. Why? Because he was jealous because Antiochus is about to get rid of his sister. And so what happens? Jealous Leotis, fearing the, she had remarried the king. He divorces Berenice, and he remarries Leotis. Talk about Peyton Place or something here. He remarries Leotis. But now she's afraid with the Egyptians about to attack, her husband's going to flip-flop again. She's afraid that he's going to get rid of her once again and go back to Berenice. So she conveniently solves the problem herself. Jealous Laodis, fearing divorce again, kills Berenice and her son so that he won't get the throne. And also the attendants, the Egyptian attendants who were with her, and eventually she says, hey, look, My husband's going to do me in again, so she bumps him off. So she killed off all the competition. She killed off her husband, her his second wife, his uh, child by that second wife, and all the attendants who came with him from Egypt. This is going to be a tad bit upsetting to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians aren't going to appreciate this too much. Verse six speaks of this. And the commentary I I gave you tells more about it. Now, the king of the north, Seleucids, were the kings of the north who dominated from Byzantium. Byzantium is the ancient name for what later became known as Constantinople. Today it is called Istanbul. Okay, because Constantine became a Christian, supposedly. The Muslims didn't want a Christian name in the territory they would take over, so they changed it to Istanbul. And from there, they ruled Asia Minor, Syria and the Aegean Sea, all the way to India, and sometimes taking Judea from the Egyptians. So Judea one time was with the Egyptians, one time with the Syrians, back and forth. Ptolemy had to remind Seleucus that he helped him to come to power. He said, hey, look, you owe it to me because I helped you come to power when we got rid of your competition, Lysimachus. But it didn't matter too much. Out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and he shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. That was verse 7. What's it talking about? The branch of Berenice. The branch of Berenice's roots, that would be her, her brother, Ptolemy III, who attacks the king of the north, Antiochus II. Obviously, to attack him, they run right up through Palestine to do it, you see. And he prevails. His army moved beyond Babylon before voluntarily retreating back to Egypt. 
his navy occupied Seleucia uh, near the capital of Syria. Antioch and also dominated the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 8. And shall also carry captives into Egypt, their gods. So when the Egyptians came up, they took the gods of the Greeks and brought them, or the Syrians, and brought them back to Egypt with their princes and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold. Kind of sounds like Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded the Palestine in the Judea. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So he's going to outlive the king of the north. But don't worry, there'll be another king of the north to replace him. Now, Ptolemy III. While in Babylon, Ptolemy III recovered images, religious relics, etc. that were previously taken from Egypt by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, don't forget, invaded Egypt. And they took a lot of these valuable things from the Egyptians. And when the Babylonian Empire fell, the Greeks inherited these. So now, what's he do? He comes up and he takes his gods and all of his gold and silver, whatever, back again. He goes home happy. And he doesn't attack again in his lifetime. Look at verse 9. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. A new king of the north. A new king of the north, Seleucus II, began new conflicts with Egypt. Finally, in 242 B.C., Seleucus II, Callinicus, takes revenge on Egypt for penetrating Uh, so deeply into Syrian lands. He is defeated, however, and goes home empty. So he didn't gain much from it. Chapter, I mean, verse 10. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. So, there's going to be conflict brewing continuously here. Finally, the battle of Raphia. In verses 10 through 12, it describes a series of conflicts between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kings over the years. They especially speak about the battle of Raphia which happened on June 22nd in 217 B.C. Many soldiers were lost in this battle. They used elephants in this battle, too. Don't forget, they're coming up from Egypt. They'd have elephants. Even the Asians would uh, sometimes use elephants. 11.11. And the king of the north shall be moved with choler. He would really be angry. Excuse me, the king of the south would really be moved with anger. And he shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands. 
and he shall not be strengthened by it. So there's going to be a lot of people lost in these battles that are going back and forth. Look at verse 13. For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. And so we find it's about this time that the Rosetta Stone comes into being. Now, Antiochus III wanted a rematch over Ptolemy IV, who dies leaving his six-year-old son as king. Well, if there's a six-year-old kid on the throne, obviously that's an opportune time to go to war, right? The Rosetta Stone in the British Museum tells of Egypt's attempt to prevent further loss and wars and loss. This stone would be later found by Napoleon's forces in Egypt in 1798-1799. Interesting time, isn't it? You remember what happened in 1798? That's when the Pope was captured by the the French and taken into captivity to die, the fall of the papacy. Isn't that interesting? The Rosetta Stone comes to light. It comes up as the papacy was going down. Now, it's interesting that a lot of historians were saying, well, these things didn't happen, so forth. When they discovered the Rosetta Stone, and they finally got so that they could translate it, they found that a lot of the stuff that is mentioned in this chapter 11 and in the book of Daniel, they were verified in the Rosetta Stone. So what happens? Now, in 1798, when they find the Rosetta Stone, now that they are starting to translate it, they're beginning to say, hey, the book of Daniel... Maybe there's some truth to this book after all. Maybe these prophecies that it mentions here might have some validity. Maybe we need to look at them a little closer. And the book of Daniel is now starting to be opened. Remember the book of Daniel was sealed until the time of the end? Now it's starting to be opened. And as it starts to open, they began to interpret these prophecies in the light of history, and they say, wow, this book of Daniel is amazing. That's why I call it the amazing book of Daniel. Because the prophecies, this chapter is fantastic. Interestingly enough, Ellen White tells us that we should be studying the 11th chapter of Daniel. Specifically. Why? Because as we see all this action and interaction, we see the God of heaven who is powerful to override nations, to take down kings and set up kings and even predict with accuracy. Laodas bumping off Bernice and some of these other things that would happen, showing that there's a God of heaven who knows the end from the beginning. Now in Daniel eleven fourteen it says, And in those times shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fail. The robbers of the people. That's interesting because now we see something else starting to take place. Let's see if 
we get any more light on that. In verses 14 through 39, there are several interpretations by scholars. About this time, there may have been a Jewish fanatical uprising. This is still unproven. And this fanatical uprising failed. So this could be what this is saying, the men of violence among your own people. This could refer to that. Or it could mean something else. In the King James Bible, it says, the robbers of thy people or the breakers of your people. The ones who break God's people. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Instead of men of violence. This may reflect back to Daniel 7, where the fourth beast devoured and broke in pieces and stopped the residue. The word residue can also mean a remnant. He stopped the people in 7-7. And then Daniel 8-13 says, the little horn trampled on or stopped the sanctuary underfoot. The fourth beast, we know from history, is Rome. So here we find Gabriel introduces Rome into the story of world politics around 60 and beyond. So something's happening here. They, the Romans, would eventually trample God's people and sanctuary. Aren't they the ones that burned the sanctuary? Antiochus burned a pig on the altar uh, when he was king, Antiochus Epiphanes. But here we find the Romans burned the whole sanctuary. So we have moved from the time of the Persians now up to the time of the Romans, which means that we have gone from the head of gold in Daniel 2 through the chest of silver, through the thighs of brass, and now we're down into the legs of iron as this prophecy progresses along. So Rome, fearing a superpower in the Mediterranean, warned Philip of Macedon and Antiochus the third against attacking Ptolemy of Egypt. So he was afraid that Philip, who was related to uh, Alexander, well, eventually, I mean, an ancestor to his brother Philip. So he was afraid that Philip of Macedon and Antiochus would unite and attack the Egyptians. And he said, wow, that would make one big superpower in the Middle East. And the Romans were determined that wasn't going to happen. So what do they do? Antiochus III, Ptolemy IV, and Philip were all young and inexperienced. These were young whippersnappers on the throne. This gave the Romans an opportunity. They were between 17 and 23 years of age. They came to power because in 221 to 223, uh, well, during that time, 221 to 223, it was a ripe time for the Romans to assert its influence against them. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities and the arms of the south shall not withstand. Neither 
his chosen people. Aha, now we're getting a little more detail. Neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. So if there's going to be a conflict between the north and the south, the chosen people, the people of Israel, are caught right in the middle. And notice what it says. Not heeding Rome's warning. Rome said, keep out. But they didn't pay attention. Not heeding Rome's warnings to stay out of Egypt, Antiochus III attacked. Antiochus defeated Scopus, who was the king of Egypt, at what would uh, later be called Caesarea Philippi, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's mentioned in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. He took Tyre also. He took Judea, and Egypt never owned it again. After this, Egypt never owns Judea again. Okay? Look at verse 16. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land. Now, didn't we see that before? Daniel talks about one of the horns exalting itself to the glorious land. And here, the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. All right, verses 16 through 39. A common interpretation makes the prince of the covenant, the obscure priest, Onius III, instead of Jesus Christ. And the abomination that makes desolate Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who offered a pig on the altar of the Jerusalem temple 160 years before Christ's birth. Yet, Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, indicated that the abomination that makes desolate was still in the future. Well, how could it be Antiochus Epiphanes in 160 B.C. uh, offering a pig? How could that Antichrist power be him when Jesus himself said that that abomination that makes desolate was still in the future? So who is the abomination that makes desolate that would destroy the temple? It's the Romans. You see. And so we find that uh, preterism just went out the window. All right. They also claim that the king who was to be broken, neither in anger nor in battle, was Seleucus the fourth Philopater in verse 20. But history tells us that he was murdered. Jesus' own disciples may have believed that interpretation in Daniel 11, and misunderstood Jesus' interpretation of Matthew 24, 15. Don't forget the disciples, they were hung up on wanting to be a nation, and they were hung up on some of the interpretations that the rabbis had given. And so Jesus, however, gave them a different interpretation. So who are these robbers of the people? Now again, this is yet to happen. Even in Jesus' day, that was yet to happen. The sanctuary would not be burned until Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and went back to heaven, right? So if the 
robbers of the people in verse 15 is Rome, and the glorious land in verse 16 is Palestine, it was the Roman general Pompey who was the father-in-law of Julius Caesar. Pompey, who was invited by the Jews to protect them from the Syrians. But when the Romans came in, they were invited because the Romans said, you two keep apart. But the Syrians were determined they were going to go down into Egypt. And so the Jews said, help. So they called the Romans in. They called the great general Pompey to come in to defend them. Well, Pompey does. He comes in and he pushes the Syrians out. And then the Jews say, oh, thank you so much for delivering us. You can go home now. And Pompey says, "Uh uh-uh, we're here to stay. That's why when you turn over to Matthew, the Romans are in charge. You see that 400 years in between? All this stuff is going on. And so we find here that the Romans took over. Now Pompey invades Egypt and Palestine in 63 B.C. Now we're getting down to near the time of Jesus. Okay? Look at Daniel 11.17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women, uh, corrupting her. And she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. Hmm. Who is the he? He is, in verse 17, is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar comes into Egypt because he had just protected them, you see. Uh, He comes into Egypt, and the Jewish-Roman League of Friendship was established in 161 B.C. This was spiritual adultery because now the Jewish people whose allegiance was only to God, now they're, they're giving allegiance to Rome. Christ is to be their bridegroom. God is to be their, their bridegroom and their protector. But now they're asking the Roman Caesar to be their protector. Well, in so doing, that spiritual adultery, that corrupted God's people, And it did not stop the Romans from invading. They came in anyway, because they were there to stay. Look at 18. After this, shall he turn his face upon the isles, and shall take many, but a prince of his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it, to turn upon him. What's that talking about? First off, the Roman Senate declared Julius Caesar not only commander-in-chief, but dictator for life. And he became a sacred person who could be worshipped. He became a god. Well, the Roman Senate feared him because of that. And notice what it said in verse 19. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Julius stumbles and falls. It means that 
He was assassinated by the Roman Senate on March 15th, 44 B.C. That is called the Ides of March. And there was an oracle back then who warned him before he ever went to the Senate that day. The oracle said, beware the Ides of March. But he went anyway. And as a result, he was stabbed to death. And the one that really bothered him the most was that there was one fellow he considered as a son. His name was Brutus. And when he turned and he saw that Brutus was among those who were stabbing him, he said, et tu, Brute? Which means, and you, Brutus? I could expect it of all these others, but you? In plain words, Brutus was to Julius as Judas was to Jesus, you see, a betrayer. And that happened in 44 B.C. Then shall stand up in his estate a razor of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. He would die a natural death. He would die a peaceful death. Who is this? Who was the great raiser of taxes at this time? I hear somebody saying it. Augustus Caesar, his real name was Octavian. He very humbly took the name Augustus, which means August August means he's, uh, he's awesome, you know, if I can put it in my own words. Now, the scripture mentions here that he would be a raiser of taxes. Now, why was he a raiser of taxes? Don't forget, the Syrians were pushing down, trying to take Egypt. The Egyptians were pushing up. And we find that at that time, when the Romans came in, the uh, Palestinians were still under the dominion of the losing side. And so, what happened here? Who pays for the war? The winners or the losers? What? The losers, right? And since Judea was in the side of the loser... Uh, Augustus says, hey, look, somebody's got to pay for this war. Now, what war is he talking about? We find that after Julius dies, some intrigue goes on. A raiser of taxes is Octavian, better known as Augustus Caesar. He taxed the nations to pay for a war between Cleopatra and Mark Antony. See, Julius, when he left Egypt, he put Mark Antony as governor of Egypt. And Cleopatra was the queen. And so what happened? Well, they kind of mixed it up a little bit. And not only in their personal lives, but also politically. And while Octavian is starting to come to the throne, Mark Antony and Cleopatra says, hey, look, If we play our cards right, we can break away from Rome. 
And we can be independent of Rome once again. And so what happens here? Luke 2.1 speaks of it. Cleopatra and Mark Antony unite against Augustus, but they lose the war. Because they lose the war, those nations that lost had to pay the bill. And so Augustus dies peacefully in bed in 14 AD, but he was the, the reigning Caesar when Jesus was born. And because of that, we find that to be taxed, they had to go back to their hometown to be taxed, you see. And so this is why Joseph had to go back home to be taxed with his young wife Mary. And notice the intrigue, notice the play and counterplay and interplay of nations that God went through just to get Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Isn't that cool? Because Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem, and it was there that Jesus was born. Isn't that fantastic? God knew all this stuff way in advance. So Augustus dies in bed. From there on, the prophecy moves into New Testament times. Now, the Old Testament's behind us. We are now moving into New Testament time and beyond. Daniel 21, verse 21, chapter 11. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This guy manipulated to gain power. Well, Augustus didn't have any children of his own. He had a stepson by the name of Tiberius. And Tiberius was one who manipulated people. And he wasn't a true heir of the son. He was a very eccentric person. And the Bible, New Testament, talks about Tiberius. They talk about the Sea of Tiberius and so forth. So Tiberius comes to power, but not for long. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown from before him, and they shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Now, who is the prince of the covenant? It was in the time of Tiberius that the prince of the covenant was crucified by order of Pontius Pilate in 31 AD. So Tiberius is on the throne when Jesus is put to death. He's the prince of the covenant. 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. This refers to the Jewish-Roman League of 161 B.C. that helped to bring about this league between the Jews and Rome. That's actually what laid the groundwork for Pompey to come in. Look at verse 24. He shall enter peaceably even unto the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches, yea, 
and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. Now, what's that talking about? Rome received lavish donations of land from various kings. It's very interesting that over in what is now Turkey, there was a a land called, uh, a kingdom called Pergamos. And Pergamos is where the Babylonian priests fled to get away from the Persians. But when the king of Pergamos died, he bequeathed his kingdom to the Roman Empire. And because of that, the Romans came into contact with these Babylonians, picked up their religion, and carried their religion back to Rome. So Rome becomes spiritual Babylon from what they picked up in Pergamos. Even for a time, would be for 360 years a time, from 31 B.C., the Battle of Actium, uh, over Cleopatra and Antony, to 330 A.D., when the seat of the empire was moved from Rome to Constantinople, under Constantine. Before it was in, in Rome, but it began to get too dangerous in Rome, with all these barbarian tribes around. So he moves over to uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. Don't forget, there's an Eastern Roman Empire and a Western Roman Empire. He just moves. In 25, verse 25, it says, And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. All right, the north and the south are again fighting. Augustus, now king of the north, moves against Antony and Cleopatra, king of the south, in a naval battle. The Egyptian rulers desert their forces and flee. Cleopatra left first. When Antony saw that she was gone, he left his troops and took off after her. She committed suicide. And when he got there and he saw she was dead, he committed suicide because he had just betrayed Rome, you see. And so all this intrigue is going on. Look at verse 26. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him. And his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. But it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Hmm, at the time appointed. Now, Caesar Augustus and Antony were brother-in-laws. They engaged, nonetheless, in intrigue against one another. Even though they could sit down and share a family meal together, they were actually working against each other to undo one another. Verse 28, Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. All right, there are two returns that are mentioned here. 
the first return was 31 AD by Augustus after the victory at the Battle of Actium. The second return was 70 AD by Titus after he had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The Jewish war lasted seven years with 1,462,000 dead. A five-month siege of the city saw 110,000 killed and 97,000 prisoners taken. They were taken back to Rome. When Linda and I were in Rome, we saw the uh, Arch of Titus. And when we got near to it, you can't get too close because they have a, a fence around it, but when we got real close, I looked in and you could see embossed right on the the wall of that arch, it shows the Romans carrying the menorah or the candlestick that was once in the temple in Jerusalem. They're carrying it back to Rome. Whatever happened to the menorah, we don't know for sure. But we do know that it went to Rome. There are some that say it's in the Vatican Library somewhere. But that's just hearsay. We really don't know because Rome was invaded so many times. It could have been destroyed even. But so we find that Titus came back victorious after destruction of the temple. Look at 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. But it shall not be as the former or as the latter. Okay, so what's going to happen the king of the north and the king of the south, they're still going to be battling, but they're not going to be as they once were. It's not so much going to be nation against nation. It's going to be more of a spiritual battle of one against another. And so we find atheism starts coming to the forefront. Toward the south refers to Pharaoh's comment, I know not Jehovah. This represents atheism. He didn't recognize the God of heaven. A spirit of atheism began to creep into the Christian church also. It exalteth itself above all that is called God in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. You can see how these things are changing now. Verse 30. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore... He shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsook the Holy Covenant. What's he talking about? Ships of Chittim. This is the land to the west. Chittim was referred to the land of the west. The Vandals and other invading barbarians led to Rome's fall. And the moving of the capital took place, moved from Rome to Constantinople, just before Rome began to uh, really got falling. The Western Empire was left to the rise of a new king of the north. No longer is it the Caesar, because the Caesar now is kicked off his throne. But in the place of Caesar, because he's removed, he gives his seat to a new king, of the north. And the bishop of Rome, or the pope, becomes the king of the north. 
you see. And the king of the south, which is atheism, that the two will run into conflict. Now Clovis, who was the king of the Franks, established the priesthood in 508 A.D. He's the one that officially exalted them as the official spiritual leaders of the empire. Now it's interesting, France, by the way, is called the eldest son, the elder son of the papacy. Because it was the Franks or the French who brought the Pope to power. Interestingly enough, who is it that takes him down from power in 1798? It's the French, right? And what brought him down in 1798 in France, there was a French Revolution. And what was the French Revolution? French Revolution was an atheistic revolution. And when the king fell, so did the church, you see. And so did the papacy. Look at 1131. So we're moving now to medieval history and actually on our way toward more modern history. Verse 31. The arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Aha, what did that little horn do? He exalted himself up to the sanctuary, right? The holy place of God. Where is that? What goes on in the holy place? That's where forgiveness of sin is offered, right? That's when Jesus left the earth and he went back to heaven. He became high priest in the holy place. And there he remains until 1844 when he moves into the most holy place. Why? The individual sins are forgiven in the holy place. In the most holy place, the corporate sins are forgiven. You see. So, if I want my forgiveness, uh, forgiveness for my sins, I will go to the priest of the holy place, which is Jesus. But the little horn said, no, you come to me and I will forgive you. What is he doing? He's exalting himself to the holy place of the sanctuary, you see, which is blasphemy. And so he would take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Now, abomination that maketh desolate, we've already established, is a phrase that refers to Rome. Okay? Verse 31. And arms shall stand on his part. All right, polluting the sanctuary. Rome's substitute of the mass and the confessional attacks the daily ministry of Jesus in the holy place of the sanctuary. Verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt with by flatteries. But the people that do not know their God shall be strong and do exploits. All right, what's it talking about when we talk about the flatteries? First off, the he is the papacy. The flatteries are smooth and slippery words. In plain words, they would manipulate. To gain influence with the world, slippery words were uh, redefined to be more acceptable 
to the pagans and heathens teaching uh, and heathen teachings are giving Christian meetings. Uh, some of the statues, you know, the statue of Jupiter and some of the others were now baptized and now you can worship them because now they're saints. You see the slippery words and redefining things. Look at verse 33. And they that understood among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. What's the captivity? God's people were in Babylon for 70 years. God's people are in papal persecutions as if they were in captivity. In 538, the Emperor Justinian set up papal supremacy and in 1798, French General Berthier arrests the Pope after 1,260 years of papal supremacy and the persecutions began to fall off immediately. Verse 34. Now, when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. All right, the Alps. During this time, we find the Walden season, the Albigenses, uh, took to the mountains to flee from papal persecutions, as did others. Matter of fact, I'm just finishing reading the history of the Celtic Church. Interesting. Celtic Church taught a lot of the stuff that Seventh-day Adventists teach today. Verse 35. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. Okay, there will be many who will be martyred during this time. They're awaiting the time of the fulfillment of the prophecies. Jerome, Huss, Tyndall, etc., they fall to martyrdom. Look at verse 36. We're moving toward the end times now. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. All right, the Pope until the end. The man of sin will continue until the second coming of Jesus and the time of the end. The papacy, even though it fell in 1798, it would regain a lot of its power and all the world would chase after it and the papacy will remain until the time of the end. Therefore, it is expected that a deadly wound would be healed before Jesus returns. Verse 37. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. By magnifying himself, the practice of celibacy is imposed on clergy. No longer was a voluntary thing or a spiritual gift. It was enforced on uh, the clergy. This is against the will of God. Verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things in his estate. We find Mariology 
starts coming up. A God that a God that the Christian church did not know starts coming in. And also worshiping of saints. There's nothing in the scriptures to support that. Idolatrous uh, uh, Eucharistic masses began to enter in and gain a foothold. Transubstantiation replaced biblical Christianity. Celtic Christianity, from the time of St. Patrick, who kept the Sabbath, by the way, from the time of St. Patrick all the way up to about the 600s, for about 200 years, they kept very much what we teach today. But then in Ireland, the Catholic Church began to gain a foothold. And before you know it, the country went to Roman Christianity instead of Celtic Christianity. 1139, it says, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many, and he shall divide the land for gain. Alfonso de Ligari, whose book I have at home, and I think I showed it to you uh, in another seminar, he elevated the dignity of the priests to possess powers even above Jesus and Mary, making the priests rulers. You see, the priests, by saying hocus corpus meum over the bread and the wine, supposedly can change that into the actual body and blood of Christ. Mary could only give birth to the Messiah, but the priest can make the Messiah. He can make Jesus. That gives him power even that Mary does not have. That's what De Ligari promoted. I've got his book. is still available, by the way. 1140 says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. A struggle is going on here. In Daniel 8.4, France's atheistic revolution resembles Pharaoh's, and it brought down the papacy in 1798. A conflict between atheism and apostate Christianity will struggle for supremacy in the end times. Are we seeing anything like that? We're... Apostate religion and uh, is struggling against atheistic influences. Today we call it conservatism and liberalism in many cases. Look at verse 41. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. I'm not going to get into the meaning of those other nations because they're they're a little debatable. But look at the glorious land. That's not. The glorious land has a spiritual application here. Rather than literal Israel with a literal temple, the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly sanctuary are being related here. We're talking about spiritual powers now. The church worldwide is persecuted for Christ's sake by the Antichrist power. 
Look at verse 42. He shall stretch forth his hand also unto the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Symbolic Egypt. Atheism and anti-Christianity are represented in world communism, liberalism, etc. And Daniel 11.43, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt to the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. The Libyans and the Ethiopians, these were historically persecutors of Israel. They symbolize the church's enemy, those who are persecuting God's people. Look at verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make make away many. This is the three angels' messages coming into view here. From verse 44 onward, Daniel speaks of our present age. Here, he he is calling to come people to come out of spiritual Babylon ahead of their plagues, fearing the return of the Lord from the east. Remember, King Cyrus came from the east. He dried up the waters of the rivers, the people that supported Babylon. So we see here Satan is interrupted in his persecutions of God's people in the end time. See the parallels between the ancient times and the modern times. You've got a Babylon in the beginning, you've got a Babylon at the end, and a chiasm with the Messiah right at the peak of it. Notice in verse 45, And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas, which are the people, and the glorious land, that's God's church, God's people, God's government. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. The drying up of the river... Spiritual Babylon will fall in uh, exterminating spiritual Israel. In their attempts to wipe out spiritual Israel, Babylon will fall. The papacy and its ambitious plans fall never to rise again. It is done. Christ wins. And so now we have moved to not only the tiptoes, tippy toes of the Daniel 2 image, But what is it waiting for? It's waiting for the rock to come to put the finishing touches on it. This is a rock that's cut out without hands. This is the establishment of the kingdom of God. Where are we living today? Verse 45. We're living in the tippy toes of time. The toenails of time, ready to be trimmed off. So, in summary, chapter 11 outlines in detail the history of the world with 100% accuracy from ancient times to modern. This prophecy fills in the spaces found in various uh, visions. The struggle between the king of the north and the king of the south has been going on for centuries and still is today. Communism, liberalism is struggling against corrupt Christianity and religion for supremacy. The papacy is the one that leads the anti-Christian forces against God's people in end times. 
and the papacy and false religions and philosophies will fall in light of Jesus' second coming. Earlier I mentioned in our present election, I don't know if you remember that or not, but I mentioned that liberalism had swung so far in one direction that in that election you would see a counter swing against it and you would see a move back toward conservatism. Why? Because the king of the south and the king of the north are still struggling. What we need to do is find that middle ground because we go too far in the other direction and we will have a national Sunday law and we will find ourselves uh, coming right up to the final end. So, my friends, I'm going to skip the quiz tonight. I know you feel bad about that, but I'm sure you'll live without it.